Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20 this morning, uh, but I'm going to uh, begin reading at verse 15, because as we noted last Sunday, these, these uh, verses really uh, hang together, are uh, really part of the, the entire uh, rest of the chapter, but we're just going to uh, read verses 15 through 20 and then turn our attention to verses 18 through 20. Let's hear uh, this word from the Lord to his people this day. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, Two of you agree on earth about anything they ask will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, these uh, verses uh, raise a lot of good questions for us, and so we uh, want to come to them with uh, interested and inquiring minds. But first, let's uh, set this text, these verses 18 through 20, in the larger context of chapter 18, where we have seen one dominant theme in Jesus' teaching. He, he, he is a genius of a teacher, and he has organized his teaching in this chapter, as recorded by Matthew, around one theme that is of supreme importance uh, to us as the people of God. What, what is that theme? What is the theme we've been looking at for a number of weeks here? What is it that Jesus is teaching his disciples here? Humility. Great. Thank you, Connie. Humility. Jesus is telling his disciples, you remember, they uh, set themselves up for this, didn't they? They sort of walked right into this one by asking Jesus to tell them who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven as they're jockeying for position, as they seem to have done throughout their, their time before uh, his crucifixion. Uh, they set themselves up for Jesus to tell them, you're not even going to get into the kingdom if you don't learn humility, if you don't turn and become humble. And he uses, you remember, a little child as an illustration, a live illustration of that point of humility. And he went on. We've seen him draw out the implications of that in this chapter. If I can just review it uh, quickly. Uh, you don't get into the kingdom unless you're humble. And so you should receive others who humbly enter the kingdom. Right? He says that in verses 5 and following. In fact, if you receive some other humble entrant into the kingdom, it's just as if you're receiving me. 
Okay, we're going to see that that concept of representation in, in our text today as well. And he warned then, he warned us against causing offense to some other humble believer. And of course, that's all of us in, in one sense or another, right? I, I mean, we're all those vulnerable, humble believers sometimes prone to sin. And so he warns us, don't be the occasion for sin. It'd be better for you to be dead than to cause somebody else to sin. And in fact, he said, you be humble enough to realize you're a sinner. <laughs> and so seek to root out that in your life that causes you to stumble. You have the humility to realize you can fall. You can be vulnerable. Uh, that, that that sin principle in you, that, that sin nature is still there and you've got to war against it with a, well, with a violence at times, just ripping out of your life anything that doesn't belong there. And he, uh, he encourages us in this then uh, by giving us the, the uh, command, really, command by example, but nonetheless a command to to be those who seek, not, not only not to give offense to someone else, but actually to go out and pursue the one who has wandered away. Uh, that little one, that humble one, perhaps, perhaps offended by another sin and sliding into temptation that way. Perhaps it's their own weakness that has led them. Perhaps it's the world around them that has somehow seduced them and, and they're wandering astray. And it gave us that beautiful picture of the shepherds searching for the lost sheep and rejoicing with great joy when he brought back that little one. He said, I want you to be like that. Be those who pursue those who are wandering and bring them back. And I argued last Sunday then in verse 15 and following, he's giving us one way to do that. One way to, to rescue that one straying. When we see someone who's, who's sinned, who sinned perhaps against us, we're to seek that person out. We're not to, we're not to let them wander away without, without doing anything. We're to seek that person out. Not, not to grandstand, not to judge them, you know, not to not to put it on display. So he makes a point of saying, you, you go privately. You, you don't need to call up somebody and say, did you hear what so-and-so did? Uh, you don't need to always be gossiping and always got something to say about somebody. Just go to that person, just you, you and that person, and help them. You're, you're trying to gain your brother back, okay? Or you're, you're trying to use the imagery in James to, to save him. Obviously, you're not the Savior, but, but the Lord may use you to, to bring that, that person back. That's what he's encouraging us to do. And if we're not successful then, uh, if you're not successful one-on-one -on -one with that person, then you take somebody with you. Again, not a big crowd. This two or three is, is enough. Uh, you don't need to try to make the person feel like they're being ganged up on, but, but take somebody with you. Probably be a good idea to, to take somebody that you think is wise, that you think is humble themselves, 
You know, don't take a proud person with you. Don't take a bossy person with you. But if you know someone who's humble, somebody with the wisdom, and uh, of course those two go hand in hand, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is what makes us humble and before him. And so look for someone humble, wise, uh, to go with you to help you in, in seeking to win that person back. And again, if you're successful, you've gained your brother and what a wonderful thing that is, uh, to, to, to be reconciled with someone who is in danger of, of going astray. You can enjoy that great rejoicing that Jesus talked about in that parable. But occasionally, uh, that won't uh, be enough to bring repentance and reconciliation either. And then we saw last Sunday in, in the text that then is the time when you involve the church. Okay, the assembly of God's people, the congregation, it's the local congregation in view here. Uh, you're not to haul them into court somewhere. This, this isn't addressing matters of criminal offense. That, that's another thing. This isn't, this isn't justifying overlooking violence or abuse. Uh, we should never overlook that kind of thing. We should always take the side of those who are abused verbally or physically or sexually. Uh, but if it's, a, if it's a spiritual matter, a matter of disobedience to God's word, then the church needs to be the spokesperson who speaks into, that life, into the life of that person and calls them to repentance, calls them to reconciliation. And it's important ministry of the church to do that. They should not neglect that. Paul has to rebuke the church in Corinth for neglecting to do that, for allowing sin to go on and even become known widespread rather than dealing with it as it should be. Uh, if that doesn't work, which we hope and pray it would, of course, if that doesn't work, then Jesus says, uh, let him, that is the one who is unrepentant, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, I want you to view that person as outside the faith, as an unbeliever. Now, now he's not saying ostracize them or shun them. He's not saying cut them off. He's saying I want you to think about them as someone who hasn't come to faith but because they're persisting in unrepentance. So they're still the object of your prayers and your hopes that they will come to repentance and faith. Uh, perhaps they, they are a believer, that they're not listening right now, but, but down the road their heart is, is finally going to be quickened to their sin, they're going to confess and they're going to come back. Paul, Paul uh, actually mentions that happening to that church in Corinth when they finally did discipline that person, labeled his behavior as sin, and told him that they were considering him an unbeliever because of his unrepentance. God did a work of grace in that man's heart, evidently. And he did repent. And then, then Paul had to say, okay, now you're erring on the, wrong, the other side. You're not bringing him back. He's repented. Bring him back. He, he's, he's turned to the Lord, and he'll be reconciled to him. So the hope is always for... Reconciliation, if the person was a false believer, they, they weren't a true believer, then we're praying for their salvation, right? So, so throughout that whole process, the goal is always 
to help someone to repentance and reconciliation. We want to win that person. We want to win that person. Well, verses 18 through 20 really provide us with the, the spiritual, the theological underpinning for all that in verses 15 through 17. Okay, so that's the way I want you to look at this, at this part of the passage. It's the foundation for what we're told to do. And, and understanding verses 18 through 20 will help you then in being obedient to the Lord's words in verses 15 through 17. And in the process, we're going to see some really important and very encouraging uh, truths uh, about who we are as a church and who we are in relationship with Christ. So he begins there in verse 18, truly. Uh, I always sort of wish they'd, they'd uh, transliterated this word, amen. <laughs> As Jesus is amening something before he says it. Okay, He's not waiting for somebody else to say amen. <laughs> He's saying the amen right up front. So I want you... Metaphorically, you don't have to do it physically, but I want you to say amen to what Jesus is saying here. I want you to believe it. Okay? What is it that he, he is emphasizing here? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, we see not only the emphasis that he puts on this by saying amen, I say to you, that, that's obviously an attention-getter. But he adds to the emphasis, doesn't he, with this poetic feel to this. And it, often there'll be that poetic quality to the scriptures that, that catches your ear, as it were. And in fact, it makes it easier for you to memorize, doesn't it, if it has that poetic quality. And so there's an echoing, a parallelism. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures love parallelism, and you see it a lot in Jesus' teaching, and so we've got, we, we've got this set of lines that echo one another. In fact, they're identical with the exception of key verbs in each set of lines. So we have that poetic quality to, to this. Um, and we also notice the coupling of earth and heaven here on earth, in heaven. And so, let's grab right up front what Jesus is saying here is that what happens in his church, in his assembly, in his congregation, among his people on earth, is to echo, to reflect, to replicate heavenly realities. Okay, he, he's bringing eternal realities into time and space. That's going to be a little hard for us to put our, our heads around, as we'll see in a moment. But, but that's what he's doing. And, and notice how that has already broadened our thinking. Isn't it our own human nature to think only in terms of this earth, only in terms of this world? You know, we, we need that heavenly perspective, and that's what he's giving here. Take the blinders off, he's saying. 
If all you're seeing is earthly realities, you're blind. Okay? You're like the horse with blinders, and you can't see the bigger picture. So I want you to see the bigger picture here. That's going to help you, Jesus is saying. So what is that? Well, he speaks here. Again, he, he's speaking, let's remind ourselves, he's speaking to the local congregation, okay, to the church. Okay? The, this term is, is rarely used. It's only used here and in chapter 16. We'll go back to that in a minute. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's that word assembly. Congregation, I think, is probably the most literal way to translate this. He's talking about the local congregation. It doesn't make sense anywhere else, anywhere else, right? When he says, tell it to the church, he's obviously not telling it, saying, tell it to the church over in Japan. Tell it to the church in China. He's certainly not saying, tell it to the church on the internet. Maybe I could underscore that. He's not saying, tell it to the church on the internet. That is an insidious thing to do. The church should never take their business into the electronic media. Period. Okay? Want to ask me further about that? Check later. Take it to the local congregation. That's what he's saying. So that's the you in verse 18. The first you there is plural, okay? If we were down south, we'd say you all, okay? I say to you all. He uses the plural here because he's speaking to the local congregation as a whole. Okay, so he's saying this to you as a local church. So what's he saying? Whatever you bind on earth, whatever you loose on earth, be bound in heaven, shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this language of binding and loosing, people, people debate a lot about that. Exactly what's being bound, what's being loosed. Obviously, he's not saying that the congregation gets together and either ties or unties a rope. Okay, so it's, it's, it's a metaphor. Okay, he's using a comparison here. But I think perhaps just the simplest way to, uh, to interpret it is to, is to remember that often being... And the control of sin is pictured as being bound by sin, being the slave of sin. That exact language is used. You're chained by your sin. Okay, like Ebenezer Scrooge is metaphorically chained by his greed, his lust for money. Okay, so you're bound by sin, and then the loosing then would be you're made free from that sin. Okay, chains are broken. You're made free. So I think that's, that's the way to, uh, to picture it here, especially in light of verses 15 through 17. What are we talking about in verses 15 through 17? We're talking about freeing somebody from sin, aren't we? We're talking about someone who's, who's bound by their sin, and we're working to see them released through repentance and faith. So I think that's what he's talking about. So he's saying to you as a congregation, this local church, he's saying that which you bind, that which you say is sin and enslaving someone is in fact sin. And when you speak forgiveness to someone, they are forgiven. 
Now let's be careful to get the order right in those two concepts. The way we read it here, and it's the way most translations put it, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, it sort of inclines us to think we do something on earth, then God does something in heaven. Okay? That's putting the cart before the horse. I don't want to argue it grammatically. There is a special verb tense that Jesus uses when he speaks of the binding and the loosing in heaven. He takes a future middle indicative of the verb to be and puts it together with the passive participle and comes up with, well, if we were being really literal, we would say, read it this way. Whatever you bind on earth will be having been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be having been loosed in heaven. Now you see the problem we're having here. We're having a grammatical problem because we're trying to talk about eternity and time. God is outside time and space. Now we can simplify this a little bit and still catch this meaning, I think, if we say whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been bound, will have been loosed in heaven. The, the New American Standard actually uses that. And I think that's good because that's the point I want you to get. That when the church speaks on earth, led by the Holy Spirit in obedience to the head of the church, Christ, she is repeating what God says in heaven. You got that? So, so when, when we call sinners to repentance, we do not do that on our own authority. I have absolutely no authority in and of myself to tell you to repent. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Okay. And neither do I have any authority in and of myself to say, I forgive you of your sins. Okay, remember that's the problem the Pharisees had with Jesus because he said he was forgiving people's sin. And they said, nobody can do that but God. Well, they're right. The only problem was they didn't realize that was God saying it right there in the flesh in front of them. So the authority of the church derives from her head, from her Lord. So whenever you do any part of this process in verses 15 through 18, you do not do it in your own authority. If you did, if you did it on your own authority, that wouldn't be humble, right? And remember, the whole point of the chapter is humility. So we're to hum humbly come to people and say, I call you to repentance, not, not on the basis of my own righteousness, because I have none. Not because I'm not a sinner, because I am one. I call you to repentance because a holy God calls you in love to repent and to receive his forgiveness. Does that make sense? 
this is so vital to have when you're seeking to work with somebody and bring them to repentance. If you come at them from a position of pride, if, you come at, if a church speaks on the basis of their own authority, you're on extremely dangerous ground. When the Pope and the Council pronounced Martin Luther accursed, God did not curse Martin Luther. But they, in effect, cursed themselves. When the UCC Church today labels sexual deviation okay, they don't make it okay. They bring condemnation on themselves. Our authority as a local congregation, your, your authority as a church when you act as a body, is not from you. This church is not a democracy. A lot of people make that mistake thinking about congregationalism, that it's a democratic form of government. It's not. It's not a democratic form of government. It is a theocratic form of government. God is to rule through his word. The authority comes from him. Now to reinforce that, notice what Jesus does in the next verse. Again, I say to you, maybe you didn't hear it the first time, he said. <laughs> whenever, you see, whenever you hear Jesus say, again, I say to you, you better ask yourself, did I miss something here? I want to make sure I didn't miss something. He seems to be really reinforcing this heavily, and so he does. Again, I say to you that emphasis, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Let's notice a couple of things here. Number one, not in order of precedence, but just in the order I'm thinking of them, the size of the church doesn't matter. Okay? God doesn't hear a big church more easily than he hears a small church. Okay? The, the church, even in a small nucleus, still derives her authority from the Lord. Okay? Because the authority is coming from God, it doesn't matter how many are in the church, because they're not speaking in their own authority. They're not saying, we outnumber you, therefore what we say goes. They're saying, we are simply echoing, attempting to echo the word of the Lord. So even two or three is enough if you agree on earth about it. That word agree, interestingly, is taken from a Greek word which literally means with one voice. Don't you like that? I, I would like that kind of translation here. If, any, if two of you speak with one voice about anything they ask. We want to be speaking with one voice as a congregation. Now we do that literally when we pray the prayer the Lord taught us, right? We're speaking with one voice exactly the same words. 
but we can speak with one voice by agreeing with one another in prayer. Even when we're praying about things that are on our own hearts, we, we can, in a sense, speak with one voice as we're praying for those people sitting around us in the prayer, the, the concerns on their hearts, right? We're speaking with one voice to one Lord and one Savior. It's uh, the Greek word literally from which we get the word symphony, because since with one verse, voice could be applied to musical instruments playing together, it came to be called a symphony. I, li I like that imagery, that when the church prays, when the church intercedes with her father, the father of the Lord Jesus, it's a symphony of prayer. You are the instruments in a symphony of prayer to God with one aim, his glory, his will. Now we should say, we, we should say that the immediate application of this, of course, is, is verses 15 through 17. It's this process of seeking to bring somebody to repentance and exercising discipline if necessary. So in the immediate context, that's what he's talking about the church agreeing on. But, it, but I don't think we're going, going too far afield if we, if we see a broader application here. That as the church is of one mind, as it speaks with one voice in worship and service of any kind, the Lord hears and answers those prayers. Now that's... We, we don't want to turn this into some kind of legalistic formula here. Like, well, if we all get together and all pray the same words, we've got God in the box. He's got to do what we, we want him to do. That, that's, not, that's not what's in view here. Our request must always line up with God's will. Okay, that, that's, that's not a bad way to... To express in, in your own prayers, if it be according to your will. I mean, our Lord prayed that way, didn't he? Our Lord prayed that way about the most important, in an earthly sense, thing that he prayed about, his own suffering and death, if it be your will. That needs to be the understanding behind all of our prayers. This isn't a blank check. It, there's no basis here for the so-called health and wealth gospel that says if you're just a Christian, then everything's going to go smoothly and you're going to be rich and healthy. That's simply succumbing to the love of, of wealth. So in accordance with God's word, in accordance with his will, we pray, make this symphony of prayer, and God hears and answers that prayer. And now the last verse, 20. And there's a period in most translations at the end of verse 19 that should absolutely not be there. <laughs> Shouldn't be there. Because verse 20 is the ground for really all that goes on, but especially for verse 19. What is the basis upon which you can believe that when you as a church act, 
and symphony together in accordance with his, what's the basis upon which you can believe that, that my father, to use Jesus' expression here, hears you? Well, it's not because you're such great people, right? <laughs> I mean, I really like you. But, <laughs> but it's because of verse 20. That's why we have the four. That's what the four is there for, right? If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For, this is why that's true, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Where they're gathered, this is the word that uh, the word synagogue comes from. Synagogue was a gathering of Jews for worship and study of God's word after the destruction of the temple and they were exiled hundreds of miles away. They couldn't worship or study at the temple and so they formed synagogues. They formed gatherings in which they could read the word and pray and, and study together. So we could, could almost say where two or three are synagogued in my name. The word synagogue then became a name for the place where they did it, just as you know, church really is you, the people, but we apply it to this building because this is where we, we meet. So we could, I think, legitimately say where two or three are assembled, where two or three are churched, where two or three are congregated together come together in my name, in my name, important qualification, not in the pastor's name, not in the church officer's name, not in your name, gathered in his name. Do you, do you have an idea of what that means? Remember he said earlier, he talked about receiving a little one in my name. And we said that's receiving that humble one as if that little one were Jesus himself. And so when we gather, when you gather as a church, it is to be in Jesus' name. He is to be what it's all about. It, that, that's why I have a lot of problem with anything that turns a worship service into entertainment. Because then it becomes about you, the audience. And that's not what it's about. For gathered in Jesus' name, it should be about him. God forbid that I call attention to myself as a preacher. It's, it's a very seductive thing to, to be standing up in front of people and have their attention. It, I better guard my heart with an extreme diligence to make it about Jesus and not about me. Because I'm enough of a sinner that I want it to be about me, just like you always want it to be about you. And this is telling us we want to come together because it's all about him, all about Jesus. And here's, I think, this has got to be the most precious part of the whole passage. I mean, it's all precious, but... Don't you love this last phrase? Wherever they are, in my name, I'm there. Does that give you goosebumps? Does the hair on the back of your neck stand up? That's mine. 
Jesus is here. The one who created the universe, the one who died for your salvation, the one who rose again in glory, the one who ascended in power, is here with his people. That's the basis for everything that's gone on before, isn't it? If he's not here, well, as Paul says in a slightly different way, in a slightly different context, if he's not here, we're a bunch of fools. We're a bunch of idiots sitting around doing something crazy. But I'm telling you, if he is here, which he says he is, this is the most important thing you ever do in your life. Worshipping him with his people. This is the one thing that you're going to be doing for eternity. Aren't you glad, you students, that you're not going to be doing any homework in heaven? (laughs) Some of us are glad that we're not going to be doing the job we're doing for eternity. (laughs) And the rest of us, perhaps, are glad we're not going to be bored for eternity. (laughs) But we're going to worship for eternity, and it will never get old. It will always be better and better with God's people because he's there. Jesus is there. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is not with you except when you're here with the congregation. You know that's not true. He is the one who said to you, if you're his child, he has said to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. He, he is the one who has promised to always be with you. Besides that, he's the omnipresent God. Psalm 139 says you can't go anywhere you get away from him. So I'm, I'm not denying those theological truths, but I do think we're right if we say there are special blessings that come to God's people when they come together, that Jesus is there in a, in a special way, in a wonderful way. What can you gain from being together in worship like you are? Why, why is it good for you to be here in this place of worship this morning? Well, listen to the book of Hebrews. And this describes what you've done in coming together to worship. The writer of Hebrews compares it to the old covenant. And he says, you, you, you're not coming to some earthly temple. Okay? You, you're not even coming to some awesome spectacle like the fire on the mountain there, Mount Sinai. That hair-raising spectacle where even Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel.
By virtue of the work of Jesus Christ as the mediator of the new covenant, he has spiritually sprinkled you with his blood and brought you together in this place so that you are involved in this worship that he says encompasses all of heaven and earth. When you worship as a church, eternity worships. The angels worship. The four living creatures worship. All creation worships. So you have that wonderful blessing of participating in something so much bigger than you are. Aren't you glad that that meaning and purpose in your life isn't something you have to figure out? And that's what the world says. You've got to discover yourself. You've got to develop your self-esteem. You've got to find out your dream. You know, you know the language. And scripture calls you to something infinitely bigger than that, doesn't it? And you experience a taste of it here in worship. If you're a believer, worshiping with your fellow believers provides visible and personal evidence of the gospel you have believed. Look around. You see people of flesh and blood like you, sinners like you, whom God has saved. Doesn't that encourage your own faith? To look at the people around and say, here, here are the trophies. God has won. And I can be one of them. As you come together as a church, you witness the church baptizing, and you're reminded of your own baptism as a sign of the Spirit's gift of faith to you, and you renew your personal commitment to Christ. You participate in the Lord's Supper, and you join with fellow believers in rejoicing in Jesus' saving work for you all, being reminded that you've been saved as a member of his body with whom you enjoy fellowship. So worship is a testimony to you, but it's also an opportunity for you to encourage others. Writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How do you do that? You got to be with one another to do that, right? Not neglecting to meet together. That's the same word, by the way, as gathered in our text. So not neglecting to gather together the way Jesus was talking in our text. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You have the opportunity to encourage other believers when you come together. It's a very good possibility somebody came to this worship service who needs your word of encouragement. Needs you to... Maybe just to notice them. And conversely, you may have come needing encouragement. You may come burdened with a need, but you're too proud to let anybody know. Don't want to let anybody know. And yet you have this wonderful opportunity, people around you who want to minister to you. Be humble enough to receive ministry and humble enough to give it. And that's a blessing of of worshiping together, isn't it? Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5, and he's describing the activity of the church in worship. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything 
to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Don't you sort of hear that symphony going on in, the, in this passage? When you sing hymns and songs, you're not only singing to the Lord, you're singing to one another. You're reminding one another of these wonderful truths that we, that we have taken from Scripture and put in our hymns and our worship. So you're encouraging one another in that way. And you're coming together ready to submit. Ready to prefer others over yourself. Right? And in so doing, Christ builds up the whole body. It's all about him, our worship. But he pours into us. As we make it all about Jesus, we're the ones that wind up richer, aren't we? We don't add anything to God's glory. There's no way we can make Jesus more glorious than he already is. He's glorious beyond words that we could use. But in your worship of him as a congregation, you are glorified in a sense. You are sanctified. Your, your mind, your heart, your will is lined up with him and you are lifted up into his presence. Oh, what a wonderful promise we have here. Jesus is here. He's here for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the condition of each one of our hearts. At this moment, we may be one of those who've strayed. We may be one who's burdened for someone who's gone astray. It may be one who's just, I don't know, just become a little cold in our worship and our faith. It may be one with a warm, passionate heart for you that is just bursting to love you and to serve you. Whatever our situation, Lord, we're grateful that you are here to receive our praise and to minister to us. Thank you for that, Lord. May we be encouraged and strengthened so that we can love and serve you more faithfully in the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.